This show is a part of the podcast network of the Walled Garden Philosophical Society, an international community of philosophers and seekers dedicated to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, and the divine, wherever they may be found. To find out more, go to thewalledgarden.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Soul Searching with Seneca. Today we are diving into letter number 24 on despising death, and there's a lot to get through, and I imagine that today we're probably going to read through more than what we usually do, uh, but the message is nonetheless concise, and uh, and so we're going to read probably from verses 1, maybe through to about halfway through the letter, but I guess we'll see. We'll, uh, we'll see how far we get, and then uh, I might have to break it up early, but uh, so let's dive in, and let's see what Seneca is trying to get across to us in this letter. So he says, quote, You write to me that you are anxious about the result of a lawsuit with which an angry opponent is threatening you, and you expect me to advise you to picture yourself a happier issue and to rest in the allurements of hope. Why indeed is it necessary to summon trouble, which must be endured soon enough when it has once arrived? or to anticipate trouble and ruin the present through fear of the future. It is indeed foolish to be unhappy now because you may be unhappy at some point in the future. But I shall conduct you to peace of mind by another route. If you would put off all worry, assume that what you fear may happen will certainly happen in any event. Whatever the trouble may be, measure it in your own mind, and estimate the amount of your fear. You will thus understand that what you fear is either insignificant or short-lived. And you need not spend a long time in gathering illustrations which will strengthen you. Every epoch has produced them. Let your thoughts travel into any era of Roman or foreign history and there will throng before you notable examples of high achievement or of high endeavor. End quote. All right, so we're going to pause here for a moment and dive into what he's saying, because there are very important messages that Seneca is sharing with us straight off the bat in this letter. Uh, And so basically what's happening is saying, listen, you're coming to me with these problems, these fears for what will happen. There's a law case going on. Now, you might be expecting me to tell you, uh, you know, hope for better things, have sweeter things in mind. But he says, no, I'm actually going to do the opposite. I'm going to take you down a different route. And what I'm going to advise you to do is to imagine that your very worst fears definitely happen, right? Put yourself in the future and imagine that these things are happening to you right now. And then you want to weigh up your fears and say, okay, well, what is the worth of these fears? What if these things do actually happen? And what Seneca believes you will find when you do this exercise uh, is you might find that these fears will fall into one of two categories. Either they will be insignificant in that the thing that happens really won't be as bad as what you're making it out to be, or it will be short-lived. In which case, you know, it's, it's not necessarily something that you have to fear so much because it's not going to last very long. And, you know, I don't, I don't think Seneca necessarily hits the nail on the head there with this argument because uh, there are kind of, 
Well, it seems like there would be a lot more categories that you could put your potential fears into than uh, than insignificant or short-lived, right? Um, and it also kind of depends on, on what you think is short-lived. I mean, from a cosmic perspective, your whole life is short-lived. It's a very small drop in a giant ocean. Uh, but, you know, when you live an entire life of pain and suffering and affliction, uh, I mean, it feels like a very, very long time to us. And so, uh, you know, perhaps we need to take this with a grain of salt and recognize that, uh, of course, there, there, there may very well be things in your life uh, that come along that last a very long time, or at least seem like they last a very long time. But the point that Seneca is trying to get across here is don't just accept your fears at first glance, right? Delve into them. Pretend like they do actually happen. What's the worth of that fear? What's behind it? What is really behind it? And so moving on, you know, the next big lesson that he teaches us in these first few verses is he really teaches us what the purpose of history is. Uh, he says, and you need not spend a long time in gathering illustrations which will strengthen you. Every epoch has produced them. Let your thoughts travel into any era of Roman or foreign history, and there will be a throng before you of notable examples uh, of high achievement or of high endeavor. You know, this really is the purpose of history. It's to teach us what people went through before us and that is simultaneously teaching us what we are capable of enduring, right? And so Seneca is essentially saying, why don't you spend a brief moment just looking for these examples of great endeavor in the past, and you'll see some people who are going through uh, the same or much, much worse than what you're afraid of going through, and this will give you strength. And seriously, that is that is what history is for. It's to give us strength. It's to allow us to learn the lessons that they learned. It's allow us. It allows us to dig into the deep wisdom that is found in the human experience, right? And and this is what Seneca is trying to get across to us. So anyway, we move on, and uh, he says the following quote: "If you lose this case." Can anything more severe happen to you than being sent into exile or led to prison? Is there a worse fate that any man may fear than being burned or being killed? Name such penalties one by one, and mention the men who have scorned them. One does not need to hunt for them. It is simply a matter of selection. Sentence of conviction was borne by Rutilius, as if the injustice of the decision were the only thing which annoyed him. Exile was endured by Metellus with courage, by Rutilius even with gladness, for the former consented to come back only because his country called him. The latter refused to return when Sulla summoned him, and nobody in those days said no to Sulla. Socrates in prison discoursed and declined to flee when certain persons gave him the opportunity. He remained there in order to free mankind from the fear of two most grievous things, death and imprisonment. Musius put his hand into the fire. It is painful to be burned, but how much more painful to inflict such suffering upon oneself. Here was a man of no learning, not primed to face death and pain by any words of wisdom, and equipped only with the courage of a soldier who punished himself for his fruitless daring. He stood and watched his own right hand falling away, piecemeal on the enemy's brazier. 
nor did he withdraw the dissolving limb, with its uncovered bones until his foe removed the fire. He might have accomplished something more successful in that camp, but never anything more brave. See how much keener a brave man is to lay hold of danger than a cruel man is to inflict it? Porsena was more ready to pardon Mucius for wishing to slay him than Mucius to pardon himself for failing to slay Porsena. Oh, you say, those stories have been droned to death in all the schools. Pretty soon, when you reach the topic of on despising death, you will be telling me about Cato. But why should I not tell you about Cato? How he reads Plato's book on the last glorious night, with a sword laid at his pillow. He had provided these two requisites for his last moments. The first, that he might have the will to die and the second, that he might have the means. So he put his affairs in order, as well as one could put in order that which was ruined and near its end, and he thought that he ought to see to it that no one should have the power to slay or the good fortune to save Cato. Drawing the sword, which he had kept unstained from the bloodshed against the final day, he cried, Fortune, you have accomplished nothing by resisting all my endeavours. I have fought till now for my country's freedom, and not for my own. I did not strive so doggedly to be free, but only to live among the free. Now, since the affairs of mankind are beyond hope, let Cato be withdrawn to safety. So saying, he inflicted a mortal wound upon his body. After the physicians had bound it up, Cato had less blood and less strength, but no less courage, angered now not only at Caesar, but also at himself. He rallied his unarmed hands against his wound, and expelled rather than dismissed that noble soul which had been so defiant of all worldly power. I am not now heaping up these illustrations for the purpose of exercising my wit, but for the purpose of encouraging you to face that which is thought to be most terrible. And I shall encourage you all the more easily by showing that not only resolute men have despised that moment when the soul breathes its last, but that certain persons, who were craven in other aspects, have equaled in this regard the courage of the bravest. Take, for example, Scipio, the father-in-law of Gnaeus Pompeius. He was driven back upon the African coast by a headwind and saw his ship in the power of the enemy. He therefore pierced his body with a sword, and when they asked where the commander was, he replied, All is well with the commander. These words brought him up to the level of his ancestors, and suffered not the glory which fate gave to the Scipios in Africa to lose its continuity. It was a great deed to conquer Carthage, but a greater deed to conquer death. All is well with the commander. Ought a general to die otherwise, especially one of Cato's generals? I shall not refer you to history or collect examples of those men who throughout the ages have despised death, for they are very many. Consider these times of ours, whose innovation and over-refinement call forth our complaints. They nevertheless will include men of every rank, of every lot in life, and of every age, 
who have cut short their misfortunes by death. End quote. So now you can start to see that Seneca is really laying out a good case that there are so many brilliant examples that we can call upon of people who overcame the most horrifying fears that humanity deals with on a constant basis. These fears of death, these fears of pain, these fears of destruction, uh, you know, these fears of leaving life is is something that, that we all kind of deal with. But Seneca is saying here, look at this person, look at this person, look what they did, look what they did, and all these amazing people who had the courage in life uh, to stand with their convictions and to stand with them against the most trying circumstances. And I particularly love this one quote from from all of this that I've just read, uh, where he's talking about uh, Socrates and his death. And he said that uh, he did this, he remained in the prison, he did not flee his death in order to free mankind from the fear of two most grievous things, death and imprisonment. You know, there's this idea that he's suggesting that one of the main motivations of Socrates in that moment was actually to teach humanity uh, that you stand with your convictions, you stand with truth, you stand with wisdom, and you do this in spite of the potential outcome of death. And so it's something to think about, you know, did Socrates choose this in order to teach us that there's nothing to be feared ultimately about imprisonment and death? So, We're going to pause here, but I want you to think about something for the next episode, right? Because Seneca is going to go on in this letter to uh, continue to uh, unfold this idea of despising death. And we need to think about what that really means, right? And, And I want to ask you this question to meditate on before we dive into the next episode. If you can overcome your fear of something as as terrible and, and frightful as death, right? If you can get to the stage where it is no longer something that is on your mind as a great fear in life, uh, is that not also the same thing as overcoming any other fear that you might have? Because ultimately, what is worse than death? It seems like death would be the ultimate bad thing that could happen to us and will happen to us, right? It's like the finality of all the suffering in life. Uh, and, and so that's a question you might want to think about uh, before we dive into the next one. Is, is, is overcoming your fear of death the same thing as, as gaining a, a courage against all of your fears in life? And so just quickly to summarize what we've talked about today, Seneca has opened up this letter by suggesting that if you have certain fears about things that are coming in your future, uh, don't try to have this Pollyanna-ish kind of view of of gaining hope and thinking about simpler, sweeter things that might happen. Actually dive into it and imagine that the worst possible things that you're fearing actually do come to pass. Then measure those fears up and and say, well, really, are they very significant? Will they be long-lived? Are these things that are really worth the fear. But he also then goes and gives us a whole bunch of examples of people who have uh, had courage in spite or, sorry, in face of uh, the things that we might fear the most in life. And in doing so, he's given us examples of people who can uh, teach us about the courage that lies within us that we need to tap into uh, when it comes to the fears in our life. And so Seneca has given us a lot to think about in these verses, and I'm excited to dive into the next episode because he's just going to go on and uh, continue to unfold this idea of despising death and what it truly means uh, in relation to our fears in life. So I'll talk to you next time. I hope you've enjoyed this episode.